I have been reading uh, sort of devotionally, I suppose, the book of Job lately. Uh, it's taken me a long time, actually. I've been reading it very, very slowly. Um, and finally this week, I got to the bit where God speaks. So if you know the book of Job, it's like arguments and long soliloquies that are obviously quite hard to get through if it took me a long time. Uh, and then lots of argument about whether God, Job is good or righteous or wrong to criticize God or not wrong, etc., etc. And finally, right at the end, God speaks. And God says this, Who is this that declares, sorry, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Or in the CEV version, it says, why do you talk so much when you know so little? <laughs> Which I think is quite a good translation. And it's a very good caution for a preacher on Trinity Sunday. Why do you talk so much when you know so little? I've been thinking mentally of this Sunday as a kind of part two in a bit of a series on the church. So last week we had Pentecost, the birthday of the church. This week we had the Trinity which is sort of like the theological ground for the church. And then next week we have Pohiri Sunday and thinking about the church in Aotearoa, New Zealand. And then there'll be a couple of bonus sermons on the church to come after that. So today I'm thinking particularly about the church and the Trinity. If you've ever heard me preach on the Trinity before, you'll know that I've really only got one Trinity sermon. And it's this. The Trinity as a doctrine is not some abstract, absurd bit of theological mathematics that was cooked up in the 4th century by theologians who'd run out of things to argue about and had too much time on their hands. Rather, the church in the first four centuries found itself compelled by experience, their experience of God to understand God in the three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's basically it. The longer version is that they found themselves compelled from the resurrection onwards to worship Jesus because of what they experienced of his saving love. That's what we had in the gospel, right? Matthew 28, they see Jesus risen from the dead, they worship him, although some doubted. I think they worshipped and doubted at the same time, right? It's not like the two things are necessarily incompatible. You can doubt and still worship. But they worshipped Jesus for what they saw of him, whether they understood it or not. And if you worship something, if you've ever argued with a Jehovah's Witness on the doorstep, you know that you can only worship God, right? That's what an Orthodox Christian would say, that only God is worthy of worship. So suddenly... Jesus seems to be worshipped. And the church found itself compelled to worship Jesus. But they also found that the spirit of Jesus was kind of drawing praise from their hearts and working miracles of healing among them and working miracles of reconciliation and forgiveness and generosity among them. And who works miracles? God. So Jesus, we're compelled to worship, and then the Spirit is doing miracles. And so they found themselves re-understanding the God who they'd always known as the God of Israel, the creating God, 
the liberating God. They found themselves re-understanding this God and renaming this God through their experience of Jesus, renaming him as a good father, because that's how Jesus addressed him. And so the work of those first four centuries of the church was really waking up to this new understanding of who God was. And they had to find ways to articulate this, ways of saying that the Father is God and the Son is God and the Holy Spirit is God, but there's only one God. And slowly they got there with this sort of stuff, you know, that there are three persons in one substance, but only one God. It's a paradox, but it's not illogical. It's carefully worked through. You, uh, I think people can often just sort of write it off as, as nonsense without actually looking at the, the careful steps that took centuries to arrive at. This is our God to be worshipped, to be prayed to in the first instance. I want to say a little bit about praying to the Trinity, and I realise that I haven't said anything very thoughtful about the difficulty that we can have, some of us, in referring to God as Father. And I kind of often sort of skip that bit because I don't have a problem with it, but I realize that it is a problem for people. And I think if it is something you find difficult because of your own experience or a sense that it's kind of loaded, do remember that God is beyond gender, but that we call God Father because this is who Jesus revealed God to be to us. And if that's kind of awkward and tricky, fair enough. It's a good something to talk about later on. But if it's out of the experience of worshipping and praying that the church came to the doctrine of the Trinity, then that's something that we should be doing too. This year I found myself kind of on and off trying to pray quite explicitly in a way that acknowledges God as Trinity as I pray and to do it sort of really slowly and linger on it. And I think it's a good thing to pause, slow down, still my scattered senses and address each person of the Trinity in turn. So to say, Father, I bring this part of my life, this problem in my life, this difficulty that someone has before you. You who created me, you who see me with eyes like those of a loving parent. And to kind of riff through my prayer issue with whatever I can sort of feel prompted to pray, thinking of God as Father. And then I'll shift to thinking, Jesus, I bring the same situation before you. You encountered a similar situation in the gospel, in your life. And I kind of riff as much as I can on that before then moving on to, to, to the Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, I bring this situation before you. You who groan at the world's pain. You who bring the Father's comfort and healing to those who turn to you. And just to kind of linger as long as it takes on this Trinitarian prayer. And I found it a really helpful 
way to pray. I think partly because it helps to get over a sort of sense of the Trinity as a really glib mathematical doctrine. I mentioned to Matthew Bartlett this week that it was Trinity Sunday today, and he got all nostalgic about a sermon that I'd preached 15 years ago, I think, or maybe more, uh, in the early days of the Substance Congregation that we used to used to be part of, um, that became part of St. Michael's. And I imagine I must have preached the sermon about the same time as I was doing my theology degree through Otago, because um, he said, mind blown. <laughs> and I thought, oh, I'm glad that God used me to blow the mind of someone as big-brained as Matthew Bartlett. <laughs> that was pretty exciting. Um, but then I was also sort of aware that I don't know that I've always let my mind and my imagination be blown by the doctrine of the Trinity in the years since. That maybe familiarity with the doctrine has dulled my mystical imagination to how faith in God the Trinity should shape my life, my worship, my imagination. I thought to myself, read Job more often so that my words about God are anchored in my knowledge of God in the fullest sense of what that means. And I preached a bit about that last year on Trinity Sunday with talking about Ian McGilchrist, the master and his emissary that some of you with long memories may recall. Anyone ever remember a sermon? I actually, this is an aside, but I remember a very, a very um, posh preacher that we used to have at the church I went to in Glasgow who had been a chaplain to, like, private school camps that the Duke of Edinburgh had been part of. Obviously, it didn't make much impact on the Duke of Edinburgh. Um, anyway, that's an aside. He, he said, he said, sermons are like dinners. You don't necessarily remember all of them, but they do sustain you. There you go. Um, anyway, I suspect back then, 15 years ago, what I'd said that blew Matthew Bartlett's mind was strongly influenced by the German theologian Jürgen Moltmann, who was a big focus of the Otago course that I did. And Moltmann was a, a, a theologian who'd served in the German army in the tail end of World War II um, and become a, became a prisoner of war in that time. And as a prisoner of war, I think it was, he had a powerful waking up to the truth that God, God suffers with us in the experience of the person of Jesus. So that the God we worship is the God who in Jesus suffered for us on the cross, who died the death of a common criminal. God, in some sense, knows what it is like to die the death of a common criminal. And so the God we worship knows within his very life, through Jesus, the very worst of our experience. God knows God-forsakenness. God knows facing death. And when we pray to the Trinity, we pray to an omnipotent God who in Jesus deployed that power to suffer alongside us and for us. Mind blown. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who influenced Maltman, said, Only the suffering God can help. Only the crucified God can save. I think this is a pretty mind-blowing affirmation. 
Jesus reveals to us, lives out for us, a God who's not far away and remote from ourselves, but suffers with us and for us. Our suffering is not foreign to the Trinitarian God. King Jesus, after a day or a week of bitching, I come back always to your bread and salt, because no other man, no other God, suffers our pains with us minute by minute and asks us to die with him. God's reality as Trinity is a powerful and challenging corrective to our glib words about God. And for those of you who were at the seminar on neoliberalism on Friday, powerful challenge to our temptation to build glib churches as well. That's why lament and lamentation is so important in our life together. But it isn't all about suffering either. If the church understood God as Trinity by paying attention to its experience, we too need to pay attention to the awe that rises up within us, the gasp of worship that we experience when we admire the fog rising up over Te Ahumairangi. There was a morning this week, I think, hey, when it was just like this whole kind of valley was sort of like weirdly full of mist. And then later in the week, when there were those days when the, the, just as that little gap in the clouds has been quite cloudy and the sun just comes through towards sunset, slanting into this valley from over Makara Peak. And it's just beautiful. And your heart lifts in joy at the things that the Creator has gifted us. So we've got to pay attention to that experience, the kind of reverence that arises in us as we praise and as we worship. And then we need to pay attention when the Spirit maybe gives us tears as we pray for other people. Or when the Spirit warms our hearts as we read Scripture. Or when the Spirit gives us a feeling of freedom as we confess our sin. Or when the Spirit lets our being rise in worship. Or when we find reconciliation with those who've hurt us or those we have hurt. When we pay attention to these things, we are understanding in some sense or experiencing what it means to live our life in the God who is Trinity. And that's what our reading from 2 Corinthians 13 that Kirsty valiantly read to us over microphone difficulties. Thank you, Kirsty. Um, is about really in that reading Paul calls the church to look in those kind of really human directions if it wants to see God at work you'll remember the Corinthian church is a hotbed of conflict and factions and incest right but here says Paul as you actually make the effort to get to know each other as you actually make up with each other after conflict as you encourage each other, well then the God of love and peace is with you. So how do we experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? 
how do we put some knowledge into our glib words about God? Well, one way Paul tells us is by striving for full restoration with one another. 2 Corinthians 13 verse 12, 11, 12. By encouraging one another, by striving for unity, even in disagreement, by living in peace. Did I put that on the screen? No, I should have. I didn't. Um, Restoration, says Paul, encouragement of one another, striving for unity, living in peace. In these things, we discover the goodness of the Father, the reconciling work of Jesus, and the empowerment of the Spirit. None of these things comes easily, but a church that flows out of the worship of the God who is Trinity has to work at these things Or it's being blasphemous. It's denying the ground on which it stands, which is the relational community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I know that in church it can be easy to check out from each other, to detach from one another, to have our little factions almost, or that's not, maybe clicks is a better word, and to live sort of separate lives from one another. But the God of love and peace, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is with us as we rejoice with each other, as we strive for unity, as we encourage one another, as we live in peace together, as we seek restoration with each other. And likewise in the Gospel, Jesus promised that he will be with us through the Spirit as we act as we act to continue his work his work of making disciples forming followers who copy his way of life who live out of the life that flows when we worship god as father son and holy spirit so how are we going as church at living the life the trinity gives us i've been in churches where it wasn't uncommon to look around at the end of the service and see little sprinkles of prayer going on, little holy huddles breaking out as people prayed in small amounts. Maybe it's the lack of pews, but it doesn't really happen in here that much, eh? And last week it did, and it was a good thing. Good to see little people clustering together and praying after the service. Sometimes I hear the comment, Vicar's privilege, the comment from time to time that St. Michael's is not an easy church in which to get to know one another, that it can feel quite hard to belong to St. Michael's. Now, I know that isn't everyone's experience, but it's some people's experience, and it makes me sad when I hear it. I'm totally not trying to finger point here, but it does make me wonder whether we are sufficiently living out of the life of the Trinity that Paul calls us into. Wonder whether we are sufficiently crossing the aisle to let the fellowship of the Holy Spirit flow, to let the grace of the Lord Jesus reign, to practice the love of God with each other. Because ultimately, I think the doctrine of the Trinity proves really practical. We think it's so abstract, but it's actually about this. It's actually about finding that God is at work among us 
us his wounded body, pouring healing into broken relationships as we reconcile our disagreements, enabling us to forgive one another, teaching us to love and know each other. And if we think from the 2 Corinthians back to the gospel, the Great Commission, then maybe the church is supposed to be a kind of sandpit, a training ground for learning to reconcile with each other so that we can take that reconciliation into all the world. In church, we are learning how to take reconciliation to all the nations because it starts with our neighbour. We are learning to take church into all the world where people are to be inducted through baptism into the peacemaking, grace-filled, loving fellowship that is God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So I want us to finish really practically by turning to our neighbor and practicing (laughs) to say something affirming or encouraging to the person next to us. You might know this person really well. You might hardly know them at all. And maybe if there's any bad blood between you, I'm sure there isn't, of course, maybe this can be a little step that you take in that direction of reconciliation. And as you do that, trust that the God of peace is among you, is among us, is with us. So turn to your neighbor. Be encouraging. 